This is iLink, a podcast presented by FHL Bank Atlanta. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of iLink, an FHL Bank Atlanta podcast. If you're new to our podcast, welcome. iLink is designed to give you helpful information and insight into the industry and goings-on at FHL Bank Atlanta wherever you are, in the office, working from home, in the car, or even at the gym. My name is Taylor McKenzie. I am the Marketing Communications Manager at FHL Bank Atlanta, and I'm the host of iLink. Joining me today is Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer of FHL Bank Atlanta, Sharon Cook. In addition to overseeing marketing, communications, government and industry relations, and strategic planning for the bank, Sharon travels throughout the Southeast, speaking and educating leaders in our industry on the importance of reputation risk management, especially in light of the cybersecurity risk environment in which we operate. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today. To start us off, could you give us some insight into the term reputation risk? What is it, and why should it be on our listeners' radar? Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Taylor. So when I think about reputation risk, I always like to refer back to the definition from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve defines reputational risk as the potential that negative publicity regarding an institution's business practices, whether true or not, will cause a decline in the customer base, costly litigation, or revenue reduction. I think this is especially pertinent for financial institutions because we deal with our customers' most sensitive data on a daily basis. Any weakness or susceptibility in a financial institution's operation is going to cause major concerns among our customer base and even the public at large. In fact, a secure payment company called PCI POW recently released a survey stating that while 83% of U.S. consumers claim they will stop spending with a business in the immediate aftermath of a breach, 21% of those polled claim they will never return to doing business with a company after a breach. And it's not just your reputation at risk. According to IBM, the average institutional cost of a breach in 2020 topped out at $8.64 million. Bigger breaches are much more costly. The Equifax breach that occurred a few years ago cost the organization $1.7 billion with $1.14 billion being paid out in 2019 alone. It seems like a few years ago, the headlines were full of cybersecurity incidents, like the Equifax breach you mentioned, or the Wells Fargo situation. Recently, though, these attacks seem to receive less coverage. What is the current risk environment for these attacks? Has it really lessened with everyone working remotely? No, absolutely not. Although you're right that these attacks are receiving less coverage as They're being edged out by the pandemic and other more pressing issues that have dominated headlines over the past 18 months or so. In reality, the pandemic and subsequent remote work environment has only served to increase the cybersecurity threat across the board. During the pandemic, the FBI stated that their Internet Crime Command Center, or IC3, saw a 300% increase in the number of cybersecurity complaints. Between 2019 and 2020, ransomware payments increased 337% to $406 million per year, according to the blog Chain Analysis. And after decreasing in 2019, the number of phishing attacks skyrocketed to one in every 1,420 emails, according to Symantec. Based on commonly accepted email metrics, that means that every employee with an email address in your institution 
is targeted with one phishing attempt every 10 to 12 days. 2020 also gave rise to a new kind of hacker. If you followed the Colonial Pipeline hack earlier this year at all, you likely heard the name Darkside mentioned a few times. This group is essentially a cybercrime as a service platform, complete with a stringent set of morals surrounding who they will and won't target. They even have separate support desks for both hackers and victims. It's essentially turning cybercrime into a business, and that's really scary. So there's clearly a case for preparing your institution for the possibility of an attack, even if those attacks aren't making headlines right now. And while we hope that most of our listeners are at least in some way prepared, where should those that aren't prepared start? Well, first and foremost, you have to have a plan. If you don't currently have a crisis response plan, or if you haven't reviewed or updated that plan in a while, that's where you need to start. Think of your crisis response plan as a type of fire escape plan. Just like your office building's real fire escape plan, you hope you'll never have to use it, but you want to know where your exits are, just in case you do. I actually developed that analogy because I started at the bank in the middle of the 2008 financial crisis, and I felt like I was in the middle of a fire every single day for two years. Most of the insight I'm about to share with you came out of that experience. Just like a real fire escape plan in your office, you don't want to be trying to come up with a crisis response plan while the flames are growing. This means that crisis planning really needs to be an ongoing part of your business planning. Just like you practice your office's fire escape plan with fire drills, you need to practice your crisis response plan often so that all stakeholders know what is expected of them when an actual crisis does occur. So what constitutes a well-developed crisis response plan? Every institution's plan is going to look a little bit different, but here are a few key elements that any cohesive crisis plan should include. First, team roles and responsibilities. Your crisis response team should include members from more than just your marketing and communications team. You're going to need representatives from IT, legal, operations, and more. You'll also want to have external partners who can support you in the event of a breach included in this team. This might include third-party call centers or your PR firm. You also need to implement escalation tables, taking time beforehand to think through potential scenarios, appropriate responses, and the parties that need to be involved for each is important. Any crisis is going to have its own unique element, but developing escalation tables that can act as a guide for a range of situations will help you to act quickly when a crisis occurs. Next is messaging templates. Having pre-approved messaging for lesser crises will help you to react more quickly and get the situation in hand. You also have to have approved spokespeople. The last thing you want in a crisis situation is for your CEO to be caught off guard by a journalist. Identifying and training your spokespeople ahead of time will help you deliver a strong united front. Next, it's on to communication channels. Even if you don't use your organization's Twitter or Facebook page very often, you need to be monitoring chatter out there. You may even be able to leverage those channels to your advantage. Having an inventory of your channels helps you know where to look and what's available to you when you need to get the word out quickly. Also, have a streamlined approval process. When you need to act fast, it's helpful to have a streamlined approval process already identified to ensure you're both covered and efficient. And then last, how are you going to measure it? In a crisis situation, you're likely to have negative headlines or unpleasant social media chatter. Identifying your metrics for success ahead of time 
will help you to cut through that noise and effectively gauge how your team responded. And remember, this crisis plan isn't stagnant. It needs to be reviewed and updated on a regular basis in order to be as comprehensive as possible. I would suggest reviewing your crisis response plan on a quarterly basis at a minimum. Now that this plan is built out and ready, what should the implementation of that plan look like when a breach or other crisis actually occurs? Is there anything else our listeners should bear in mind during a real crisis situation? Absolutely, Taylor. The pattern we have laid out in our plan for execution is simple. Prepare, monitor, and respond. Prepare your messaging and delivery. Monitor what's been asked and said online and offline and respond quickly. In order to follow this pattern, you'll need to be able to gather facts from the IT or operations teams quickly, monitor your channels so you know exactly what is being said and by whom, work with your legal team to ensure you are covered before sharing anything externally, share your messaging with stakeholders and frontline staff so that all employees and partners deliver a consistent message, activate your call center if you have one, and then last, distribute your statements effectively and efficiently. This is a lot to remember. I hope you were taking notes as I went through it. Um, but it really needs to happen in very short order during a crisis situation. So it's important to put these items down in your plan and make sure that while you're preparing, planning, and practicing, you're checking off this list. So we've covered what to do before and during a crisis situation. But what should be done once the immediate threat subsides? Well, just because the smoke is clearing doesn't mean that your job is finished. First, you'll need to debrief with your team. Be candid about what worked, what needed improvement, and what should be done to improve in the areas that you were lacking in. You'll also want to review the statements you released. Again, this is an opportunity to determine where improvement is needed. You should also review the questions and concerns you receive from customers, media, and the general public. These insights will help you strengthen your response for a future crisis. You should also continue monitoring all of your communications channels. Keeping a finger on the pulse of the conversation will help you stay aware of any continued conversation happening even after the news cycle dies down. And in the long run, increased chatter on social media may help to provide early warning signs of a crisis in the future. I would also suggest you keep your response team meetings on the books. Meeting regularly with this team will help you to be more prepared for the next crisis. And of course, you will want to reevaluate and update your plan based on your learnings. Insight from the challenge you just faced may actually help you to deliver a much stronger response to the next crisis that occurs. Overall, your experience in this particular crisis is going to help you better handle any future crises. Make sure you are making the most of the lessons that you've learned. Sharon, thank you for joining us today. This has been such helpful insight for our listeners. As we wrap up this episode, do you have any words of advice or other insight that you'd like to share? Of course, Taylor. I've said it a few times already, but my best advice is to prepare, plan, and practice. History has shown that it's not necessarily the size of the breach or whether a breach occurs at all that could ruin your organization's reputation. It's the strength and transparency of your response that matters. And you never know when a crisis is going to occur. So it is never too early to prepare for a strong and effective response. Thanks again, Sharon. We hope you found the information in today's episode interesting and useful. For more information on FHL Bank Atlanta, please visit FHLBATL.com or follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Mm -hmm.